Welcome. Yeah, it's uh, December 18th, uh, one week to go. My kids were so excited this morning that seven days from now, we will be tearing into presents, you know, and I'm excited too. Um, But one of the things that happens uh, within Church 21 that was actually like very discouraging uh, for me at the beginning, because we planted the church, uh, what, 11-ish years ago, and uh, at Christmas time, everyone leaves the city. And it starts like the middle of December, and I don't, they just like to party more than we do, I guess. Um, And so it became a very discouraging thing for me, like Christmas time, so many churches like are are getting bigger and bigger celebrations, and ours is getting smaller. And so I'm reminded of the story where Jesus's birth uh, happened, and then there were a few shepherds that were called to come and celebrate Jesus. And so I just think that we're the shepherds that are hanging out, chilling in downtown Montreal. So uh, that's our role in the story. So uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get going on a genealogy. We love you so much as a church that we are preaching through a genealogy. It's awesome, isn't it? Uh, Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you're for us, that you're here. I want to pray for those who might not know you yet, that, that they might come to a true, not just understanding of who you are, but a real relationship with you, that they would acknowledge you and submit to you and understand why you came. I want to pray for those of us who have heard the story of your birth and shepherds and angels and all the things, and we've just come to to kind of be meh with it. And we, we nod our head in agreement with the facts, but it doesn't make it into our hearts anymore. May you do heart work in us and cause for rejoicing to explode uh, in us this morning. May, may the goodness of your, your word and your good news be like dynamite to our hearts. And we love you and we need you for everything. Amen. All right, so uh, have you ever heard the words, you're not the right fit? You're not the right fit. Yes, two people. Okay, great. The rest of you, man, life's awesome for you. Uh, but for those of us who have heard those words, uh, it's, it's discouraging in a sense. It's, it's frustrating. Uh, we feel that rejection. Um, and, and you're in good company because there are some Christmas films that show us that rejected people win in the end, right? So we have Rudolph. Rudolph, who had like this big teenager pimple on the end of his nose, right? Unlike the, the rest of his reindeer, uh, they didn't let him play in reindeer games. But we know after he goes to the island of misfit toys, I'm just ruining it for you, but it's been out since like 1930. Like, you probably should have seen it by now. Uh, and he ends up leading, you know, Santa's sleigh, and he's down in history. He's in the history books. That's why we're talking about him this morning. Thankful for Rudolph, but he was rejected. He didn't fit. And then my favorite Christmas movie, Elf. And he can't fit anywhere. He can't fit in the North Pole. He can't fit in New York City. And so he's just rejected all around. And then he helps bring Christmas cheer to New York City. And somehow New York City is the savior of the entire world. And uh, we all celebrated Christmas that year because of Elf, right? But to be more serious, you're not the right fit. Maybe, maybe you experienced that with a team, uh, or maybe you got a letter from the university you're hoping get, to get into, and they said it more intellectual than that, but basically you're not the right fit. Or maybe it's a job, or maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's a country. Uh, we immigrated to Canada uh, 12, 12 years ago, and when we first came, uh, they rejected us. And I'm like, no, 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 we have all the right paperwork. Like, everything is all set, job offer, everything is here. And they said no. And so we had to go back to the U.S. and like scheme for about a half a day. And then they let us back in. But that was 
like, we planned on moving to Canada. And all of a sudden, it's like, what if we can't move to Canada? What, what happens at that point? But I think the hardest one is, what if God says to you, you're not the right fit? You're not the right fit. And that's actually what we're going to look at this morning. Two people in Matthew chapter 1, which Matthew, that worked out nicely. Matthew and Matthew fitting. Uh, but we're going to encounter Rahab and, and Ruth, two people that clearly don't fit into the lineage. And you might have just heard him reading it, and you were like, I, I didn't think that. I thought they fit quite well. They just fit in there nicely. But they really don't fit. So why not? Well, let me take you to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book into the Bible. And Deuteronomy is being written to a people who have just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, and are just about to enter into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is being written to a people that are already gods and already free. Not to a people who are trying to earn their way into the promised land, but or earn their way into God's favor, but who already have it and are being told now, live this way. Because you're my people, because you're free, live like this. Some of us think about God in that if I can live the right way, then God will let me be his people and let me be free. But that's not why Jesus came. If we could earn our way in, Jesus wouldn't have had to come, but I'm getting ahead of myself now. I had an energy drink this morning. I'm just not sure that was a good idea, but we're gonna go for it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says this For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is, this is a striking verse as well. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on. You and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it wasn't because they were, you know, special and unique snowflakes that God said, ah, yes, I'm going to love you more than everyone else. It's because God just chose to put his favor on them. Why? I don't know. It says here, you were the fewest people, maybe. I, I don't know. We don't know, but God chose them. And then because he chose them, he said this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them. Well, who's them? Well, go back to verse 1. Uh, the, the nations before you that you're going to encounter as you enter into the promised land, the Hittites and Girgashites and Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and the Jebusites. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And here's why. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So you're my people. You love me. I love you. I'm sending you into a place with lots of other gods, lots of other idols, lots of other worship. Don't buy into that. Don't intermarry with those people. They'll lead you away from me. And you're like, really? I'm a little bit smarter than that. I'm not going to get led away. Okay. Well, let me go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings uh, tells the story of the kings of Israel and their failings mostly. But let me read to you from the wisest man other than Jesus to ever walk the earth. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 4 says this of Solomon. 
When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And then verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So don't, don't intermarry with these people. They'll lead you away. No, 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 I'm smarter than that. I'm, I'm, I'm more mature than that. I, I'll be on mission to them. They'll come to follow the true God. Well, the wisest man on earth, that didn't work out for him that way. Don't put yourself above the, the commands or the imperatives that God has set before us, Right? You're already the people of God, so live that way. And this, this makes it into our day as well. Uh, for some of us, we, we think it's, it's okay to date whoever we want. We think it's okay, like, no, 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 like, they're really nice people. They're good. They're wonderful. And it's like, oh, but they love Jesus. You're like, no, not yet, but I'm really on mission with them. I bought them a Bible. I did this, and, and you know, we're, we're going to move toward marriage in this way, and some of you think that like, dating is this like cul-de-sac to keep going around and around. We did a whole um, sermon on dating in the fall, which you can go and listen to. But dating is really like an on-ramp to the highway, that you want to find someone who loves the living God like you love the living God, and you're moving together into union that way. Not that you're going to bring them along and, and someday you're going to share with them who this Jesus is because it's going to be catastrophic for you. Very few stories end up, yeah, and then, you know, they found Jesus and now we're both following Jesus together. Most of them end up that one of them is not following Jesus and, and maybe even both of them aren't following Jesus. But that's not to the point. The big idea in all of this is that the people of God were not to intermarry with people who were not part of the people of God. All right, so now we get into Matthew chapter one. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it gives a genealogy, the lineage that Jesus comes from. So let me read to you verse five, and that's the only verse we're really gonna be in this morning in this text. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and then verse six, Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Rahab, we're going to talk about Rahab first. Um, Rahab and Ruth, let me say this first before we get into this. Rahab and Ruth, they were not Jewish. Rahab, she was part of the Canaanites. And so this was a people group we don't have time to look at this morning in fullness, but they were not good people. They were evil. They were wicked. They had wicked practices, and God actually wanted them destroyed. And that's another sermon in and of itself. But they were on the no marry list, like prohibited from marrying them. Ruth was a Moabite. And to be a a Moabite meant that you belong to this ancestry that came from an incestuous relationship. And I'll just leave it at that. Not pretty. Not pretty. And so these are are where these two ladies are, are coming from. And so we ask the question, how did they make it into Matthew? How did these two outsiders who didn't fit, make it into the lineage of Jesus, the lineage that the Messiah would come through. Well, in verse five, we find out that Rahab was the, was the mom of, of Boaz, or maybe the grandmother of Boaz, but she was married, or at least had a child, with Salmon. There's not a lot of, of 
context that we have here. And if we look through the rest of scripture, we can't tell the full story of, of Rahab. But what we know is that she had a child with Salmon. Maybe it was Boaz, or maybe Boaz was her grandson or great-grandson. The thing with genealogies is that sometimes they skip generations and didn't put everyone in there. And that's just, that was okay to do. That was okay. And so somehow she's related to, to Boaz, maybe the mom, I don't know. But it's a nice story. Salmon and Rahab come together. Great. But how did they meet? How did they meet? Well, we already went through the story the people of God were in Egypt for 400 years. Then they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're entering into the promised land. And just about as they're going to enter into the promised land, Joshua, their leader, does this. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho is a city. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. They lodged there. Staying at a prostitute's house. Why would they stay at a prostitute's house, right? If you send someone on a mission to go and spy out the land for the people of God, and it's like, we stayed at the prostitute's house. Like, I don't know if that's the best decision to make, but the thing about a prostitute's house is that it was always open. People were welcome to come in there. There was, there was little judgment, and so as they entered in, they found refuge and welcome into this house, and what we find out is that she already knows the story of what's going on. She's heard about the people of God. She lives in this great walled city of Jericho, but she's heard what God is doing. And listen to what she says in Gen or Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to them, I know, this is really important, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. This is important. He is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She's heard, she knows, she believes. And then verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So she goes from being inside of this city that's going to be destroyed, part of this group that's an enemy, to now being part of this group that's going to be saved and be brought into the people of God. And listen to what happens in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17. It says, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then jump down to verse 25 of Joshua 6. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And as she lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She was, she was saved by her faith. 
She was saved by her faith that she believed what was going to happen was going to take place, and she asked to be rescued from that destruction. Jericho was destroyed as a city, and only Rahab and her family were rescued. I mean, that's an incredible testimony. It's an incredible thing. If we could invite Rahab to stand up here, she would say, my city was going to be destroyed. Somehow these two guys show up at my house. I invite them in. I work out this thing where they're actually going to rescue me. Incredible. Incredible. But the question is, how does she make it into Matthew 1? She's an outsider. She's a Canaanite. They, she wasn't supposed to be part of the people of God or be married to anyone that's part of the people of God. Well, she makes it into Matthew 1 through this guy, Salmon. Salmon. I keep wanting to call him Salmon, but she didn't marry a fish. So, uh, so here's the thing. She is part of the Canaanites. She has faith in Yahweh, God, the true and living God. She's, she's rescued. So if she becomes part of the people of God, then Salmon could marry her. Because being part of the people of God, it's not through your birth that this happens. It's not that, well, I had Christian parents, you know. When did you become a follower of Jesus? I've always been a follower of Jesus. Not true. Maybe you've always come to a church. Maybe you've always been involved in religious activity. But you haven't always been a follower of Jesus. At one point, you had to submit your life to him and say, I I want to follow you. I need you to rescue me. Not, well, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone needs to be rescued. You individually. You individually. So if she, as an individual, becomes part of the people of God, then Salmon could marry her. Because it's by faith, not by birth, that you become part of the people of God. But we aren't sure if she's married. And this is where we're just kind of left with this text, right? It's just the genealogy, but yet we're left with all these questions in this text. We're not sure if she's married at this point. Maybe she used her old profession to, to have this child. We don't know that Salmon and, and her were married. Maybe she had a change in heart. But what we do know is two things. One, she had a child. And two, she had a reputation. She had a child and she had a reputation. Now, Scripture keeps calling her. They could have just said Rahab. But they keep saying Rahab the prostitute. Why? Because that was her reputation. That was what she was known for. Her reputation would have been strong. She all of a sudden went from being a prostitute to now being a part of the people of God. And everyone would have known that. She would have been the whole talk of the two million-ish people that were there at that time. Her reputation would have been strong. And as kids were coming by to meet the new person, parents would have said, no, 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 she's unclean. We don't go near her. We don't go near her. Like, what's a prostitute? It's like, we're not going to talk about that. She was known for her old job, not her faith. But then look at how the Bible speaks of her. Let me go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews is a book near the end of scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. She gets a whole verse. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, but she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Mentions two things in this text. One, the old. Rahab the prostitute. It's like, oh, there she is again. There's her old identity. But the focus of this verse is actually on her faith, not what she used to be. 
So Hebrews 11 is actually really telling that she used to be known as a prostitute, but now she's known by her faith. That her faith brought her in. Her faith gave her a new identity. That no longer are you your vocation, no longer are you your uncleanness, no longer are you your rejection, no longer are you an outsider, but now because of your faith, you're a daughter of God. Now you've been brought in because of what God has done for you. No longer are you an outsider. No longer do you not fit. And no longer are you what other people say about you. I'm sure that for the rest of Rahab's days, she struggled with people constantly referring to what she used to be and what she used to do. But that's not her deepest identity. It's that she is now a daughter of the true and living God. And no one, no one ever has and no one ever will receive the affirmation of beloved child of God except through faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't do it. Your works can't do it. You can't show up enough. You can't get Jesus the right present. You can't do enough things. It's only by faith. And this is free. This is the beauty of the gospel. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is different from religion. Religion says, do this, don't do these things. Maybe God's gonna love you. It's like a Santa Claus type thing, right? Naughty list, nice list, if you're good enough, right? Someone in in our neighborhood we overheard saying to the neighborhood kids, Santa sees everything you're doing. I'm like, amazing, absolute amazing. That's religion, that's religion. The world loves it. We love religion. We want to guilt you and shame you into doing good so that maybe you'll get the gift you want. But the gospel says you are so bad you wouldn't get a gift. The gospel says the naughty list is that is so deep just on you that you would never be invited in. Except Jesus came. Jesus came for you. And we'll look at that in just a minute. Rahab's son or grandson Boaz, he would have grown up being told what his mom or grandmother did as a job oh, we know your mom, oh, we know your grandmother. And so Boaz, being this young man, would have grown up with all kinds of stigma. And at the time, you know, there was arranged marriages, like people came together because, you know, we think that you're gonna be good for you and families talk about it and they bring them together. Um, Maybe, I don't know this to be for sure, but as I sit in people's stories and I think about what is humanity really like, um, it's quite possible that Boaz remained a single man. We know that's true. He remained single until he was an older man, but maybe it was because of who his mom or grandmother was, that no one wanted to give their daughter to that type of family. Because if we give our daughter to that type of family, oh, what's gonna happen to our family? Somehow we're gonna become unclean. Somehow we're going to um, receive the things because of what she has done in her past life but he would have grown up with lots of stigma. Here's the thing about Jesus though. Jesus also grew up with lots of stigma. Jesus also, we believe that that Mary did not have relationship with Joseph in that kind of way, right? Little kids in the room, right? In that kind of way. And, uh, And yet she had a child. 
And that's never going to happen again if someone's like, no, 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 I had the same type of birth. It's like, no, you didn't. You're also a liar, right? That was a one-time, one-time thing. And so as Jesus was growing up, though, no one believed Mary. There was all kinds of stigma put onto her, put onto Jesus. And so Jesus would have understood Boaz. He would have understood Boaz and what was going on. And so let me, let me take us to the second woman in this text. So we did Rahab, and now we'll do Ruth. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 5, talks about Ruth. Let me read this list of names again. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. So here's the story with Ruth. You can go and you can read her whole story in Ruth chapter 1 to 4. Very short. You can do it in less than 15 minutes, actually. And so uh, Ruth marries this guy, Boaz, that we've been speaking about. And Boaz was related to, to Rahab, uh, obviously. And the story is really, really messy. So let me explain the backdrop of what was happening. So um, there was a famine in Bethlehem at this time of the book of, of Ruth. Okay, famine in Bethlehem. And Elimelech, a cool name, Elimelech and Naomi, a couple that's married, they had two sons. And they decide because of the famine that's going on inside of the promised land where God said, I will always provide for you. I will protect you. I will care for you. Instead of believing and trusting that promise, they're like, ah, we don't know. And so they leave the promised land and they go into the land of Moab. Well, what's the big deal with this? Well, the Moabites are polytheists. They don't have one God. They're not worshiping God, Yahweh. Um, their, their primary God is Chemosh, which also required child sacrifices to be made. And they, the Moabites opposed Israel's entrance into the promised land. So they were kind of like enemies. And so the people of God are now saying, ah, things are so bad with, in the land that God said he promised to protect us that we're going to go into enemy territory so we can get a happy meal. So we can be taken care of, so we can grab a snack. And they decide that they're just going to live there. They leave the promised land to find their own way. They leave being a follower of God to follow their hearts. The one thing that was really, really clear, they weren't supposed to marry Moabites. Definitely do not marry Moabites. So what did this rock star family do? Well, let me take you to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The one thing you're not supposed to do. They took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah. I keep wanting to say Oprah every time I see it. Um, Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10... So in this story, we have a salmon and Oprah, right? They both make it in the Bible. Orpah and the name of the other one, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So they didn't just go for the happy meal. They figured, oh, this is really nice. Let's stay. Let's invest. But here's what happened. Both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So they moved there looking for a better life. Husband, Elimelech, dies. The two sons die. And now it's Naomi. And she is with her two daughter-in-laws, her daughters-in-law. She hears that the Lord has blessed the promised land again. Surprise, surprise. The Lord has done what he said he's going to do. And so she says, okay, let's get up from here and let's go back to where I'm actually from. Let's go back to where I'm from. She's kind of like this fair weather follower of God, right? When things are good, I'm happy to be a follower. When things are bad, 
I don't really like God. I'm not for him. He's not for me. And she actually changes her name. She comes back into Bethlehem and into that area. And they say, Naomi, you're back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. I'm bitter. God has made me bitter. She just loves to blame everything on God. So she initially invites the ladies like, okay, Orpah and Ruth, come on, like come back with me. But then she says, no, you should actually go back because I, I, I can't provide for you. There's no way, I don't have savings. I don't have anything that I can do for you. And Orpah leaves, but Ruth stays with her. And listen to what happens in Ruth chapter one, verse 15. Here's what Naomi said. See, your sister-in-law has gone back. Orpah's gone. Back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, if Naomi was a follower of God in the deepest sense and wanted to make disciples of this God, she wouldn't have said to Orpah, go back and follow those other gods that I know aren't true, can't bring you value, meaning, and purpose. But instead, she's like, ah, okay. All paths lead to God somehow, maybe. Right? Very modern day thinking back then. She just sends her back. But then listen to what Ruth says in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And this is kind of weird doing weddings in the past. I don't think any of them are here. No, I don't think so. Um, People have said, could you please read Ruth 1, 16 and 17 at our wedding? I'm like, this is like a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. They're like, yeah, but it's beautiful. I'm like, okay. Let's take it out of context. For where, pretend it doesn't really exist for the wedding. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge. Can you imagine a mother-in-law? Right? It's like, okay, in-laws, stand up. Right? You're going to make this covenant together. It'd be amazing. Uh, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth is saying, I'm all in. The God that you believe in, that you think has made you bitter, I want to see who this God is. I want to explore him. I'm leaving my whole life behind to become a follower of you and your God. She leaves everything behind. So what ends up happening is she goes back to Bethlehem and Naomi can't provide, so Ruth does. She's young and she can work. So she ends up, it happens that she works in the field of Boaz. She ends up working there. Boaz is a really outstanding, upstanding guy, well uh, admired by the, by the community, well respected by his workers, good, good dude. And he actually notices that Ruth is there and says, hey, leave, as you're gathering things, like leave some extra for her so that it's easy for her to be able to put this together as she's, as she's out working, right? So he's really caring. And he tells Ruth, keep coming back to my field, Because being a single woman in that day, if you went out to another field, you could be used and abused by someone, left in the field, you could be killed, all kinds of bad things could happen. Boaz is saying, come back here, I'll protect you. I'll make sure that you are cared for. But the thing about Boaz is that he's still single. Older dude, still single, probably because of the stigma that's associated to him. And this is... You know, as we look through some Old Testament characters, we see that barrenness is a real problem. If you can't have children and you're supposed to have children, according to the promise that God has made to specific people, then that's a problem. This is the male version of barrenness, being an an old guy and single in this culture. Being old and single is not a bad thing. But when you're the one that the Messiah is supposed to come through, 
it's kind of an issue. He's a relative of Naomi, and he's a relative of Naomi in that he's a redeemer, which means that he has the ability to step into this family and become the new provider. All hope is gone because all the males are dead, right? That's what, that's what this society was like. You put whatever judgments on it you want, but that's just the reality of what, what happened. And so Boaz had this opportunity as a redeemer to step in and give a new future to Naomi and a new future to Ruth. The thing about Ruth, though, is that she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. She's on the do not marry list. She's on one of those people. But what we see in the book of Ruth is that she becomes a follower of God. Your God is my God. I'm giving up these other gods to become a follower of the true and living God. And just like Rahab is brought into the people of God, into being part of Israel, so Ruth is brought in and is part of Israel. And Ruth goes to Boaz and she submits herself to him. This Moabite, nobody should marry because she's a foreigner. And this old barren man who has all the stigma attached, they come together. And he provides redemption and a fresh start for Ruth and Naomi. Now here's the thing, Ruth didn't deserve this. She didn't fit, but her faith fit her heart to be a part of the people of God. And her faith fit her to be a part of the lineage as well. Listen to Ruth chapter four, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then in verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And David eventually would be the great, great grandfather of the Messiah Jesus. You see, many generations after Ruth, her grandson, her great, great, whatever grandson, would come to redeem outsiders just like her. He would come to bring outsiders into the family of God. And this is why Jesus actually came. Because at one point, you were an outsider. You were an outsider. You were a Rahab. You were a Ruth. And Jesus, out of his goodness and out of his grace and out of his mercy, set his sights to come so that you no longer have to be an outsider, but you can be brought in as an insider. You are an enemy of God. And because of the great love with which he loved you, he came and, and died on a cross, paid a penalty that you should have to pay, rose from the grave so that you and I could be brought into the family of God. That Jesus comes, Christmas is about Jesus coming, taking on flesh so that he could do what you and I could not do for ourselves. He came to save not just a little bit of you, but all of you. Jesus didn't come to be the lifeguard that sees you drowning and is like, okay, buddy, I got your foot. I'm gonna hold your foot up, but God helps those who help themselves. So if you can paddle up, I'll hold your foot up. Not that type of saving. You were drowning dead on your way down and Jesus comes and picks you up and brings you to life. That's the type of saving he came to do. And he put you into his lineage and he gave you a new future and he gave you a new place right now and he put his spirit inside of you we were all outsiders, and Jesus came to make us 
insiders. Jesus came for people who don't have the right upbringing. Jesus came for those who weren't born in the right country. Jesus came for those who don't have the right religion. Jesus came for those born into the wrong family. Jesus came for those of us with the wrong status over us. Jesus came for those with the wrong vocation. And Jesus came for those living in unbelief so that he could bring us to be part of his kingdom. You see, this is good news, isn't it? That he came to bring us in because we couldn't get ourselves in. As Jesus uh, was doing his ministry, he would tell stories. And he told this story, this parable of a wedding feast. And so this master was having this, this big banquet, this big banquet. And he was inviting everyone, all the people who should be there. And so as the, the people who should be in get their invitations, they're like, ah, I'm getting a manicure that day. I'm sorry, I can't come. Or, oh, I got to tend to my field that day. I can't come. Everyone that should be there said, no thanks. We don't want to be there. And so the master in the store gets really upset, and he's like, okay, fine. He tells the servants, go out everywhere else and get all the outsiders. Go find all the people who shouldn't be in here and bring them in. And as Jesus is telling the story, he's like, this is what the kingdom of God is like. My kingdom's not going to be full of people who are saying, yeah, I've always been an insider. I've always had the fast track to success in Christianity. Everyone's story is, I was an outsider and Jesus brought me in. I was an outsider and Jesus brought me in. And there's this passage in the book of Revelation, which we're going to start in January. And it talks about the song of Moses that there's a song of Moses that happens. And he's like, well, what's the song of Moses about? And the song of Moses is about where Moses gets to stand up and he gets to tell the story of God delivering and, and bringing his people out of slavery. And if there's a song of Moses, then there's probably gonna be a song of Joel and there's probably gonna be a song of Nehemiah and there's probably gonna be a song of Nate. There's probably gonna be songs where we get to stand up and say, I was an outsider. And let me tell you about how Jesus rescued me. It's probably going to be like a baseline behind as we're doing it, and it'll be more R&B than you're probably comfortable with, and there'd be, there'd be some soul to it, right? I wish we had a piano player behind us, right? Like, there'll be all that. We'll get to tell the story of what Jesus has done, and we'll raise our glasses to Jesus again and again and again and again, and that's what Christmas is about. It's not this neat little silent night. Jesus never cried. He never poo-pooed in his diaper. Like he didn't do any of this stuff. It's that Jesus ferociously came into the world to save outsiders. Just like you and just like me. You are not, none of you, none of us are outside the scope of the redemption of God. That Jesus came to buy your freedom. He came to fit you for his kingdom by faith. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? We watched a story last night, uh, or a movie. We don't watch stories, I guess. We watched a movie, uh, The Polar Express. Did you ever read Polar Express as a kid? Um, it was made in 2004, so some of you were like born that year. Um, but I, I read the book as a kid, which was mostly pictures, and uh, all of a sudden they created this major movie out of it. But the, the idea is that there's a bell Right? And in that, this, this little boy can't hear the bell, and then all of a sudden, he can hear it. Right? There, there's faith, there's belief that comes. And this is what Jesus wants to give to you. Like, do, do you hear the bell? Do you hear his voice saying, I came for you. 
I came to do this for you because I love you. And I didn't just come to do it for you. I came to do it for your friends, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your enemies. And I've given you my spirit that you would go and tell it on Mount Royal or go and tell it on whatever job you do, right? The idea is that it's not a message that we keep inside. It's a message that we are sharing because the world needs redemption. And so this is good news for anyone that he came to adopt us and make us family. Let me end by reading you um, a Christmas song. You've heard of the, the song, O Come All Ye Faithful. This is O Come All Ye Unfaithful. O come all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come and know that you're not alone. O come barren and waiting ones. Weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Oh, come bitter and broken. The Naomi's in that text are welcome, right? Oh, come bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come taste of his perfect love. Oh, come guilty and hiding ones. There's no need to run. See what your God has done. He is the lamb who is given, slain, for our pardon, his promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come. He is the offering. Come and see what your God has done. You will not find a better Christmas gift than Jesus coming for you. Don't allow your heart to be lulled into a place where you're like, yeah, yeah, no, I know this. If that's your heart, there's sickness happening. If this is just mere information again, there's something wrong with your heart. Go to him and say, would you please ignite faith in me again? And it's not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith. That he is the object of your faith. And even when you feel like you're gonna let go of him, he's not going to let go of you. He actually says no one can snatch you out of God's hands. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Jesus, every time I tell the Christmas story, I feel like it falls in so many deaf ears because we know too much. We're not surprised by this anymore. We hear the, the, the Greek gods who are just so, so messed up we, we made the Greek gods to be like us with all of our flaws and things we want to be like. But Jesus, you are like us, but yet unlike us in that you were perfect and you came. And we didn't deserve for you to come and we don't deserve for you to fit our hearts by faith for you, but yet you do. And you came and, and you, you took a very humble posture. And in living a perfect life, you went to the cross intentionally but you're alive. You're alive and you're with us. And I pray that you would awaken affections for you in our hearts. I pray that it wouldn't just be mere religiosity, that it wouldn't just be the Christmas story, but that the incarnation would blow us away again, that we would be wowing you, that, that, that we would be led to, to worship in awe of what you would do. And I want to pray for people who don't yet know you that today they would say, Jesus, 
I need you to rescue me. I need you to redeem me. The way the picture of Boaz coming in and redeeming Ruth and Naomi, giving them a completely new start. You're the better Boaz, Jesus, who came and and give us a, a brand new start with new hearts, new minds, new desires, but an eternal security in you. Would they turn to you this morning? I want to pray for those of us um, who know what we're going into during the, the Christmas season. We know the family, the frustrations. We know people uh, that we're going to be around that we're just, we're already getting anxiety and stress about being around them. Would you convince our hearts that we're actually messengers of good news for those people? And that we would be emboldened and have compassion for them to be able to, to speak words of life into those relationships and that our friends and families and coworkers and neighbors might come to follow you this year. We love you. We need you to respond. Our hearts are, are dull without you. So would you help us to respond well? Amen.